Okay, so I want to actually open our time today by reading this section that we're going to be covering. It's in John 17, so I'll give you a few seconds to turn there in your Bible. It'll actually be on the screen as well. But we're going to read verses 20 through 26. And so, kiddos, I need you to really pay attention to this because this is very important, okay? Follow along with what we're reading. These are the words of Jesus. This is what he says. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Okay, so we've been studying prayer at Foundation Church for over three months now. That is a long time to talk about a specific topic, but that's how much we believe in it. But we don't just believe in it. We are trying to build a culture of prayer, a vibrant culture of prayer at Foundation Church. And we are also trying to help everyone here, myself included, believe in the power of prayer, okay? So we're not just trying to, to just pray, right, and do the prayer. Sometimes we go through the motions a little bit. Sometimes they feel more meaningful or receive. Whatever you may feel, we want to believe in the power of prayer. That's what we're trying to do. That's why we're talking about prayer. And I'm going to read this verse from James really quickly that just talks about this very thing. It's in verse 16, chapter 5. It says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Did you catch that? The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? That's amazing. And so prayer is essential. It was essential to Jesus, and it needs to be essential to us. And so I thought, what better opportunity than to just take a moment and pray really quickly as a church that prayer would be rooting itself into our habits, into our lives. So you join me really quickly as we pray. God, we pray as we receive this scripture and as we receive this message, God, that you would be working in our lives showing us the power of prayer, showing us the value of prayer, how essential it is, like water and food to our souls, God, may we depend on In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so a little bit of context of where this prayer is coming from. This is uh, set in the upper room shortly before Jesus is going to be arrested, and they had just finished a meal together. So the dynamics of this moment are very important. Jesus knows that his time on earth with his disciples is drawing to a close. So these hours, these last hours with his disciples are incredibly precious. Jesus loved these men. He cared for them. The smallest detail of their life was important 
to Jesus. And it's in this moment that we see a prayer. And it's actually a very emotional prayer. Shortly before this time of prayer, Jesus delivers some very important instructions to his disciples. If you go back to John 16 and read it, you read basically his last full teaching. But I want to read just one quick verse, the very end of John 16, verse 33. He says, I have told you these things, the teaching that he did, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. That's not the most easy verse to read, right? He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus knows that this is going to be a difficult place for everyone. And in particular for those who follow him, for those who are Christians. And his final remarks are profound. He says, take heart. Take heart. In scripture, that phrase is often paired with, and be strong. And be strong. So these men, knowing scripture to the various degrees that they know, would have recorded in their brain the combination of take heart and be strong. The next line, I have overcome the world, is also powerful. Here is the fact. Evil has not won. It does not rule your life or mine. Rather, we are citizens of, the God, of God's kingdom. And God is the highest authority, meaning that he has conquered everything on our behalf. So when Jesus says this, when he says, take heart, he's not saying whimsically, hey, hope it goes well for you. He's saying, no, I've conquered. Take heart and be courageous. But he knows. Jesus is wise and smart. Just telling them that, just giving them the encouragement is not going to be enough. That he needs to pray for them. That he needs to pray for us. And one of the things I love so much about the Gospels is that we see so much of Jesus' teaching. Not all of it. He certainly had more opportunities to teach at his time on earth. But it shows us so much of his teaching. Which of course is his design for us to flourish as Christ followers. But this passage gives us a unique look into what Jesus was thinking and feeling in the final hours before he's arrested and crucified. And so this prayer, this longest recorded prayer of Jesus in Scripture, is a vulnerable look into the heart of Jesus with the weight of humanity and his friends on his shoulders. This was the prayer that he prayed. So we divided it into three sections. A few weeks ago, section one, we talked about um, Jesus' prayer for himself and to God. And he covers three primary things. He says um, that his life his primary concern is that his life would glorify God. And we talked about that, how our lives are designed to glorify God. He prays for them. Um, he prays for those who need salvation. We talked about that, how we need to be praying for those who don't know Jesus, who need salvation in their life. And then he finished that section of prayer by petitioning God that people may know him. And that particular type of knowing is a knowing where they experience God, not a head knowledge but an overall knowledge, something that just is part of who you are. So that's how section one, that's how Jesus opens his prayer. And then he prays in the next section for his disciples specifically, these men that he loves, the people that were around him during his time on earth. And he prays for three things. He prays for unity amongst them. He prays for them to have joy. And he prays that they may be sanctified. Right? Sanctification is the process of being made like Jesus. And so we covered that a few weeks ago. And today, we finish with the section that I just read at the beginning of Jesus praying for all believers. 
So this is his prayer for us. This is his prayer that's extended into the future today and going forward. So we're going to look at that last section of prayer. And it's specifically for those who will believe in him through the message of the disciples. So the final section of this prayer opens up with Jesus praying that people would know him through the testimony of his disciples. Who, of course, um, would, be go, would go on to begin the church, to start the church, to found the church, and that message carrying on and on. And if you remember, this is on the eve of being, of being arrested, of Jesus being arrested. And so he knows that that's going to set in motion a chain of events that lead to his death and resurrection. But after the resurrection, so after that all takes place, Jesus returns to his disciples. And in Matthew 28, he gives them this beautiful promise that we can also hang on to. He says, all power in heaven and earth have been given to me. He says that. He says, all power on heaven and earth. Imagine knowing somebody who has all the power in heaven and earth. That's a good friend to have, is it not? Yeah, right, Wolfie? Yeah, Wolfie knows. And then he says, because of that, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. That's the challenge. And that is who we see Jesus praying for in this section. The people, including you and I, who would come to know Jesus by the message that the disciples began to spread. The same message that has been preached in churches around the world for thousands of years, the beautiful message of the gospel. So on what must have been one of the most difficult emotional evenings of his time on earth, Jesus prayed, and he prayed for you, and he prayed for me. And that is incredible to me. That's incredible. So what did Jesus pray for? Let's talk about that. Because it must have been incredibly important in that moment, Jesus has just a few hours left and he's going, I need to pray for these people. I've given them the instruction, but I need to pray for them. So we see in verse 21, he says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Jesus prays again for unity. He prays for unity. He prays that we would be one as Jesus is one with the Father and the Father is with him. Just like he prayed for the disciples, specifically in the earlier section, he prays for unity amongst all Christians going forward until his return. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this is a pretty important topic to Jesus. For him to double down on that prayer in the last moments of his life makes me think Jesus really wants us to have unity. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right, just making sure you're awake. And what's amazing about it is that the disciples took that call seriously. In fact, there are a number of accounts in the New Testament uh, where unity and togetherness and agreement are written about and recorded for our benefit. And one of those sections is actually found in Ephesians chapter 2. And so we're going to read that in just a moment. But before we read it, I want you to know... It's good to know that the letter to the church in Ephesus is recorded and written by a man named Paul, who was not one of the original disciples. He's not one of the people sitting in this room with Jesus during this prayer. So this is not him going, hey, Jesus prayed for this. I should probably do this. Instead, he was actually an immense, incredible, powerful enemy of the church until God transformed his life. And then he went, to be, he went on to be one of the most influential Christians 
ever. So he wasn't there to hear Jesus teaching on this stuff, or maybe he heard a little bit about it, right, through other people. But rather, his understanding of unity, this is what I want to point out, his understanding, understanding of unity in the church is based on how he saw other Christians live. That's how he knew about the unity that Jesus prayed for. That he saw it in the lives of Christians in a way that changed him. And eventually, through the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, he goes on to pen, to write letters to churches talking about this very subject. So in other words, he learned about the unity Jesus was praying for in John 17 through the example of Christians. And that's pretty amazing to me. The passage we are about to read in Ephesians is an encouragement to the local church, which, by the way, is us, right? We're the local church, and it's about the unity that Jesus prayed for. And so with that in mind, I'd like to read to you Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. You can follow along in your Bible. You can follow along on the screen, but just pay attention to the words that are being written here. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done to the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in, in, in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier and the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place for God, which God lives in by his spirit. Okay, so let's unpack this passage. Paul starts by identifying two groups, Jews and Gentiles. Now, biblically speaking, these two groups were very far apart in almost every single way. But that can be hard for us to understand because that's not the reality that we've had for a couple thousand years. So let me just give you a couple examples of how these two groups might have interacted or related to each other. So the first example, Republicans and Democrats, okay? <laughs> Citizen and alien, right? Seahawks fan, 49ers fan, that's for you guys out there, right? These two groups of people were connected by the places they lived and the spaces they occupied but they were separated by almost every major category. And that is what Paul is describing in this first section. And then he makes an incredible declaration of Jesus' powerful work in the lives of both groups. Verses 14 through 16 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier 
the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And how did he do that? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Okay, so this language is not that common for us in modern America. So let's just take a moment and kind of see how significant this line is. The commands and regulations to the mind and heart of a devout practicing Jew in this moment were their deepest held convictions. Anybody in here have some deeply held convictions? We're not talking about the temperature at which you like your steak. We're not talking about the things that you uh, would prefer on your pizza. We are talking about the things that you would die to protect. And that's actually exactly how Paul felt about those very commands and regulations in the law. Before his literal Damascus Road experience, that's where the term comes from, okay? Before that, Paul was killing Christians. But God transformed his life. Paul was set out to destroy the Christian church. And honestly, in his mind, the reasons were good. Because he believed so deeply in the commands and regulations of the law that he was willing to go protect them with his life. He was willing to go to war to protect the way of life that they represented. So for Paul to write these words, knowing how much it matters that the law separate Jew from Gentile would have been more significant than most, if not all, of the political, cultural, and philosophical convictions that Americans hold today. That's crazy, right? Now, reading this passage caused me to consider these questions. Does Jesus reign supreme in my life over my political convictions? Does Jesus reign supreme in my life over my cultural convictions? Does Jesus reign supreme in my life over my philosophical convictions? Because if not, then I'm out of order. Then my convictions are out of order. Not because I say so, because scripture says so. That's what we're talking about right here. So Jesus took the commands and regulations of the law and he set them aside in his flesh, meaning that his death and resurrection absorbed the penalty for disobedience to these things. And he did so for a very specific purpose. And we catch that in the second half of verse 15 and verse 16. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The work of Jesus on the cross to took two distinctly different groups on opposite ends of every important spectrum and he made them one and he put their hostility to death. So please hear this. Please hear this. These two groups were as far apart in their convictions as any two people attending a church in America today. And for that reason, I have hope that we will not move apart but receive and adopt the very conviction that Jesus had when he prayed in John 17. May they be one as we are one. So why does there seem to be such division in the church? Maybe you don't think so. There seems to be, though, in my mind, and my answer is short, because it's the easiest trick the devil can play. 
It's the easiest trick the devil can play on God's people. John 10.10. I'm going to read this to you until you can't stand it anymore, okay? It says this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so here's your reality. Here's my reality. There's a real enemy who hates you and hates everything good about your life. The same enemy, enemy devises scheme after scheme to destroy your life, to steal the things from your life that matter most to you, and to kill any ounce of faith and joy and love that you have. And the reason the enemy does that is because he's desperate. They're desperate. They've already been defeated. The enemy is desperate. And they're desperate for a really specific reason. Why? Glad you asked. This is the last part of that section in Ephesians. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God's spirit, or God lives by his spirit. The reason the enemy is so desperate is because they're defeated. And the only chance that he has to steal and kill, destroy is to distract us from becoming the temple the combined collective church in which God's spirit goes forth into the darkness of the world. That's our call. Isn't that incredible? But it also means that the enemy is very desperate because when I look at this room, I look at a bunch of people who have incredible talent, who have incredible giftings and have incredible means, and we are such a small fraction of the church. So of course he's desperate. Look at this group. Look what could happen if we are unified behind the same message, the gospel, the same thing that Jesus prayed for in John 17. The enemy is in trouble. Amen. 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 And because of that, they're desperate. Can you imagine what the world would look like if people, if all the people who know Jesus by the message of the disciples were able to set aside these secondary held convictions for the glory of God and his kingdom. Imagine if those things became so trivial compared to God's glory. They will. They will. They're going to go away. But I would love to see it now. I'd love to see it while I'm here. I'd love to see it right like today. I would love to see that. Because it just means that there is so much life being brought to our community and the places where we work and the people that we interact with and the children that we raise, the people we pray for. Man, it seems amazing. And that idea makes me crave the spirit of unity that Jesus prayed for. So just a moment, we're going to pray. I'm going to invite the band up. We're going to pray. We're going to pray that those hostilities that Jesus conquered, that the barrier that he already removed would not be this sort of fake thing that the enemy can use to divide the church. Maybe you can't imagine it yet. Maybe it's 
not something that you're okay with. Maybe you think, no, this is too important for me to set down. I just want to encourage you. It's okay. Jesus prayed for you. And he's still praying for you. And I'm praying for you. So I want to ask this question. What conflict are you being called out of today? What hostility are you being called out of today? What differences do you need the Spirit of God, who, by the way, has all power in heaven and earth, what differences do you need that Spirit to reconcile? So that you and I and the rest of His church may move forward in unity. May we aspire to be the image of the holy temple that is rising to the call of our Savior, to the prayers of Jesus on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets held together by Jesus as the cornerstone so that everywhere we go, everywhere we are, everyone we interact with would experience God, not just know about God, experience God. You usher the presence of the living God when you step into it. That's incredible. So let's not let silly things divide us. That's what Jesus prayed for. That's what he prayed for, that they may be one, as I am in you, Father, and you are. May that be our reality today. Will you stand with me? We're going to pray. Then we're going to sing a couple more songs. Kiddos, I want to just thank you. You have been wonderful today. And if you would like someone to pray for you, both Paige and Mike are going to be in the back. They would love to pray with you. If you're feeling the hostility that you know is driving you away from your calling, if you feel that inside and you want someone to pray, they will pray for you. But don't let this opportunity pass by. Don't let this opportunity go by to just ask God, God, that you that Jesus prayed for, may that be true in my life, in my marriage, in my friendships, in my family. So God, we lift this up to you. We lift up this message, this prayer that Jesus prayed, God, that has continued by the power of the Holy Spirit throughout the history of the church, leading us here today. It's truly incredible. So I pray that that divided wall that no longer exists anywhere but in our minds, through the trickery of the enemy who hates us, who wants to destroy and steal and kill, God, that we would embrace the unity that Jesus prayed for by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you would do a major work in our lives in that way today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing.